you have a Bible, you can go to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I was just reminded during that beautiful time of worship, Christian, every single day, we're one day closer to heaven. Every single day, we're one day closer. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait until I see my Savior face to face in my faith become sight. Amen. Amen. Hey, um, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, um, if you have grown up in church, um, if you've been around any kind of uh, areas where someone is preaching, for long enough, um, eventually you'll be able to tell when a pastor is prepared or not. Um, <laughs> and if you are that person today and you can really see if someone's prepared or not, would you go ahead and make your way out the back? No. I got a text message from Pastor Lyle yesterday uh, morning um, that he has COVID. Um, and so uh, we're obviously praying for Pastor Lyle. Um, but I will tell you this. Um, this is I've been preaching now for 11 years. Started preaching when I was 15 years old. I'm 26 now. Out of every time I've ever preached, this is probably the least prepared I've ever been. And so uh, we're praying for Pastor Lyle to get better. And I have a feeling after you hear this sermon, you're really going to say prayers for him to come back. But uh, it's good news that it doesn't matter if it's me, you, or whoever. The word of the Lord never returns void. And so it's not really about who's preaching anyways. It's about the Lord and his spirit and the work that he's going to accomplish. Amen. So as we begin this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we love you. God, thank you for this opportunity. God, to hear your word. Lord, I pray that in the next few moments you would preach, you would dismiss me. God, if you don't preach, there will be no preaching done. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said. Don't... um. Don't you just love it when the right person at the right time for the right purpose shows up? I heard a story once of a man who was out in Los Angeles, and he wasn't used to Los Angeles. And he was going out to restaurants, and he was kind of seeing the town. And he stayed out too late on one Friday night, later than he intended uh, to stay out. And he realized that he had wandered into a part of Los Angeles that wasn't exactly safe. And he told his friends around him, hey, I'm going to go ahead and head home because I don't, I don't think it's safe around here. And so I'm going to go ahead and head back. And as he walked to his car, um, he noticed that there was a group of about five or six men that were really watching him. And they were looking at his watch on his wrist and they were looking, you know, just, just really checking him out. And he thought, okay, maybe I'm just being paranoid because I'm scared. I'm not used to being in this type of area. And uh, they started walking towards him. And so he starts walking a little faster to try and get to his car. And then he hears one of them behind him say, hey, stop. Unless you want to get hurt, give us everything that you have right now. And this man was thinking, you know, what do I do? Do I run? Do I do what they say? And I give them everything. And as he was thinking, he hears a car start to pull up behind him. And he's thinking, okay, these guys are obviously about to hurt me. I, don't, I hope I don't get hit by this car as well. But as soon as the six men start to come towards him to press him, he hears tires skirt, a door open and slam. And he hears someone behind him say, I got your back. I got your back. I got your back. He doesn't think anything about it. 
he just thinks someone sees what's going on and stopped. And so he just continues looking at the man. And so it's going to be two on six, but he was confused when he started to see the six men start to take steps backwards. See, the reason why is because the man who jumped out of the car was this man. So I have fact-checked as much as I can. Everything I know is that this story is true. <laughs> but it just seems almost too perfect. Obviously, if you don't know who this is, this is Iron Mike, right? The greatest boxer of all time. You know, if you're in that situation, Mike Tyson has to be one of the top two people in the entire world that you would want to show up in that moment. And see, the guys ran away because Mike Tyson showed up at the exact moment that he was needed, at the exact time he was needed, in the exact place that he was needed. Friend, you may not realize this, but where you currently are in your life is a part of God's plan for your life. The job that you have is not an accident. The co-workers that you work with is not an accident. The relational circles that God has placed you in is not an accident. Rather, God has sovereignly and strategically placed you where you are right now for a purpose. And this morning, I believe that through the inspiration of the text and through the Spirit's leading, you'll see that God has placed you right where you are in this moment to be salt and light for the preservation of our land the persuasion of the lost, ultimately for the praise of the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Would you all stand in honor of reading God's word? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says to his followers, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Three reasons I want to give you this morning why I believe God calls us to be salt and light. The first is that God calls us to be salt and light for the preservation of our land. For the preservation of our land. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty again? You see, the salt that Jesus is speaking of here was used a bit differently than we use salt today. Anybody put salt on everything like me? Like, when I get a meal, I want to put enough salt on there, it's going to clog my arteries. Like, put all the salt, because it's tasty, right? It makes everything taste better. You know, in biblical times, though, this wasn't the primary way that they would use salt. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. This is really going to bless you this morning coming to church. Um, Jesus did not own a refrigerator. Nor did any of his friends. Nor did anyone 
in that time. And so food would go bad. And so back in these days, salt was used as a preservative. Um, people would take the salt, put it in the meat, put it in their food, and that would slow the decay and the rottenness of the food. So basically, you want to make food last longer, you put some salt on it. And so salt, we learn, preserves. And Jesus here tells his followers, which is relatable to us as well, that we are the salt of what? What does the text say? The earth. Therefore, what Jesus is trying to convey is that his people should be the reason that the land is preserved. In other words, Christians are on earth one of the reasons to make sure that society does not decay or become too rotten. Can you imagine if right now all the Christians and all of the people who believed in morality, Christian uh, morality was taken off the earth and it was just left for everyone else, all non-believers? Can you imagine what that would be like? Um, have you ever been so shocked or scared that you couldn't move or speak, like you were paralyzed by fear? A couple of months ago, um, me and my wife were out doing some shopping and such, not by my choice, but because that's just what I had to do. I had to go with her. Uh, some of the men in the room can give me an amen. Um, by the way, um, if any store wants to really up its game, there needs to be a waiting section in every store. Men, can I get an amen? Like, while she's shopping, let me sit down. I don't want to walk around. Um, but we're out shopping and we get back home and she, my wife says, Hey, I got these new headphones. I'm going to plug them up. And she's looking for a charger and she can't find a charger that goes to these headphones. And so she, you know, gets one of these, uh, junk drawers. Do any of you have a junk drawer? It's just a drawer that you just throw all kinds of stuff in. And so she starts going through the junk drawer and she finds a cord that looks similar to the one that this, uh, these headphones would need. She goes, Hmm, this will work. And so she plugs it into those headphones and she sets it uh, in the floor of our office and we walk away and we don't think anything else about it. But a few minutes later, she, she goes, do you smell smoke? And I go, hmm, I think I do. And we kind of track down where the smoke is coming from and we walk into our office and a little square uh, four by four part of the carpet is engulfed in flames. Supposedly, this charger that she plugged into the headphones was wrong, it was messed up, broken, I don't know what it was. Um, now, I keep a fire extinguisher uh, in our kitchen, and, um, you know, uh, I see the flames going off, and my wife goes, do something, do something, go get the fire extinguisher. And in my mind, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to simply walk to the kitchen, grab the fire extinguisher, walk back into the office, put it out, and we'll be good. And if I would have taken my wife's instructions, I would have done that. But I was so shocked and so taken aback looking at the flames that when my wife was talking, all I heard was wah, wah, wah. And she goes, says, go to the kitchen. And I just, until eventually my wife has to run to the kitchen <laughs> and get the fire extinguisher. That didn't make me feel like much of a man after that. We were arguing back and forth like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, it's your fault. Because you messed up with these headphones. She's saying, well, you could have got the fire extinguisher. And what we argued over was, who's more at fault? The one burning the place down or the one who knows the answer but is sitting by watching as it goes up in flames? We're good at preaching to the choir, aren't we? And us preachers, man, we are the worst. We'll stand up and in places like this and say, can you believe what the world has come to. 
The world is just terrible. All these kids skateboarding on the sidewalks, all jacked up on Mountain Dew and Skittles. They don't even know how to shake a hand anymore. And we'll come up with this phrase, the world's going to hell in a what? To that, I would say, yeah, the world has gotten pretty rotten. But I do have to ask, has the church just stood by and watched it go up in flames? In the Old Testament, we read of King Hezekiah and how he hears of the forces of Babylon growing stronger and stronger by the day. And he realizes that eventually they're going to grow strong enough where they're going to come and they're going to lead his people into exile. They're going to take them. They're going to take them and every single thing that they have. But it's going to be far after Hezekiah is dead and gone. And we read in his story that as he tells the people, yeah, a day's coming when they're going to take you and they're going to take everything that's been passed down to you for generations. And he says this, but at least there will be peace in my day. I've heard many Christians, and I've said it too, you know, by the time our grandkids or our kids are our age, there won't even be a, a hint of Jesus in our land. And yeah, we might be dead and gone when that happens, but can I ask this question? Are we okay with that? Like, are we really okay with that? Are we just going to stand by as the world disciples our kids? Are we going to disciple them? Church, the reason why almost 20% of Generation Z believes that you can choose your gender is not solely because of social media and secularism, although that does play a part. I believe it's solely because for far too long the church has been passive about the things of God, scared to live out our faith in the public square, scared to talk about controversial things, and as a result, now we see our young people getting ransacked by Babylon. Isn't it easy to just blame the generation before us? Don't we do that a lot? You know, every generation blames the one before them, and it's so easy to do that, and I've done it, and I need to stop doing that, but I have to be honest, you know, doesn't every generation mess up? Doesn't every generation have its faults? And so we can think, yeah, you know, did certain generations mess things up in the church? Yeah, but who hasn't? Which generation doesn't have its faults? Um, for so long I've been one of these pastors who have said things like, we only get your student, your child, for four hours a week. You get them the rest of the time. You're the key disciple maker of your children. And, and that's true. But I have to be honest. When I look at resources to give parents and I look for tools to equip them to do it, we have to ask, what, what has the church done to equip parents to disciple their kids? You know, I, I can only speak for me. And here's what I'll say as your student pastor before you this morning. I have fallen utterly short of equipping parents to disciple their students. And before you, I want to sincerely apologize for that. So in 2024, if you have a student here, you're going to be hearing a lot about ways that you can be equipped to disciple your kids. Because I'll tell you this, we talk bad about the younger generation, but as a student pastor, I've got to have their back. And I'm not just saying this, this is true. I truly believe that Generation Z is going to be the generation that will spark the next great awakening in our country. And church, the best way that we can assure that we leave a better world for our kids is to invest in them now and teach them that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. 
and it's worth giving your life for. Is the world dark, you ask? Yeah. Is the spiritual pulse in our country dead, you ask? Well, I don't think so. But for the sake of argument, let's, let's just say that it is dead. And to that I would say, isn't it a good thing we serve a God who specializes in resurrection? Church, Jesus is calling us to preserve our land. And in our call to be the salt of the earth, we have two options. We can be proactive or we can be passive. We can invade the dark places around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ or we can just simply sit back and allow darkness to do its thing. And so what does it look like to be proactive in preserving the land around us? You know, we can't change the actions of others, but we can change ours, can't we? So here's a few ways, just really quick, to not contribute to immediate cultural decay. I'm going to go through these really quick. Number one, do not be pulled into corners of negativity. Misery loves company, right? And so people who want to be negative, man, they want you to be negative with them. But I promise you that can sour you. And so don't be pulled into corners of negativity. Number two, don't also don't be pulled into corners of gossip. My preacher, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where, you know, we all wore suits and everything and everything was, you know, kind of old school. My preacher used to say, you long tongue gossips out there. I tell you to come lay your tongue on the altar, but we only got 14 foot altar. That's not the way to go about it. But I will say this, gossip sows discord. And that doesn't contribute to the betterment of the body of Christ. It's not edifying. So don't be pulled into corners of gossip. Number three, we must hate sin and love holiness. God, I don't know if you realize this or not, God hates sin. God cannot be around sin. God hates sin, and so therefore we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. So therefore we should hate sin and love holiness. Number four, we have to hate lies and love the truth. We live in a culture where truth is subjective versus objective. You ever heard this saying, well, this is, this is my truth. You ever heard that before? You want me to give you a tip? If someone ever says, hey, um, it's my truth, this, 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 just look at them and say, okay, I agree. Your truth, truth is subjective. But what if it's my truth that you don't exist? You see where that falls? Truth is objective, and we must love the truth and defend the truth. Number five, we must know the Word of God. I saw a study when studying for this that biblical literacy is down 25% in the last 10 years. There's many Gen Zers who I have taught who come in who told, told me that they've grown up in church, and they don't know the difference between Moses and the Israelites and Noah and the ark. Church, we should know the scriptures. We should know the word of God. And lastly, we must pray for the spirit to invade our spaces. We must pray that the spirit would come and have his work among our certain contexts. For our families, for our co-workers, for our church. Church, we can come up with the best marketing tactics, the best worship music, the best preaching the best you name in our church, but without the move of God and His Spirit, we're doomed. 
So we must pray that the Spirit would invade our space. The life led by the flesh, listen to this, leads to cultural decay and death. But the life led by the Spirit leads to cultural reconstruction, reconciliation, and resurrection. So not only does God call us to be salt and light for the preservation of our land, but secondly, he calls us to be salt and light for the persuasion of the lost. Jesus goes on and says, you are the light of the world. A city put on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand that gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Jesus says that we should let our light shine before others so that they might see our good works and as a result, give glory to God. Notice here that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not you could be. If you try really hard, it, no, he says, you are the light of the world. Jesus is saying, is, is, Jesus is saying that if you are his follower, people will and should see you and what you're about. And so what does Jesus mean when he says light? One of my favorite New Testament scholars, D.A. Carson, defines it pretty well when he writes, light is a universal religious symbol in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. It most frequently symbolizes purity as opposed to filth, truth or knowledge as opposed to error or ignorance, and divine revelation and presence as opposed to abandonment by God. And so what does this teach us? What is the insight biblically about light? Well, it teaches us that light is distinctive. The biblical concept of light and all that it stands for is best understood when contrasting it to darkness. The things of evil are dark, therefore the things of good are light. Jesus is saying, that dark world out there, yeah, I want you to be the light of it. We as his followers are to be the contrast of light to the darkness in the world. In other words, we should look different than the world around us. Church, you know that's a key in us reaching the world is that we look different than the world. In the uh, early 2000s, the seeker-sensitive church movement spread across the country. And the idea behind it is that we would make Sunday worship uh, services as easy for unchurched people to come in and enjoy and attend and really uh, appreciate their time. And those of you who know me know that I am very, very, very evangelistically minded. And so, like, to me, I think, yeah, that's, I'm 100% all in on that. But... Somewhere along the way, not all, but I think many churches started to care more about our numbers on the Sunday school role than the numbers we put in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so they unconsciously, in some cases probably consciously, made the decision that it didn't matter if we had to compromise biblical principles as long as our attendance is up. And so language changed from Sunday worship to Sunday experience. And sermons became talks. And those talks turned from an emphasis of proclamation of the word of God to motivation of the value of self. And somewhere along the line, we started making preacherettes, preach sermonettes to Christianettes. And weak preachers preach weak sermons that make weak church members. And so while some churches have smoke machines on stage and drop Easter eggs from a helicopter at their Easter egg hunt, a lot of them don't look any different than the rest of the world. 
And church, we won't win the world by becoming like the world. We'll win the world by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and looking to the things of God, not compromising our biblical convictions. You see, when we try to become like the world to reach the world, what ends up happening is, is we end up like the world. I had a friend tell me that he was going to frequent bars. So in case, you know, anybody that he's drinking with, if they mention anything about church, he could then share the gospel. And guess what ended up happening? He planted a church out of the bar. No. He ended up falling into that scene. I'm going to get emails about what I'm about to say. Church, I don't care what article you read. I don't care what some church you watch on YouTube does. When the church gets in bed with the world, it's the church that winds up pregnant. And the baby comes out looking nothing like its father in heaven. Do we want to be like the world? No, no, no. We win the world by the power of the gospel and the proclamation of it to the ends of the earth. And so what should the world see when they look at the church? How do we let our light shine in a way that wins the world to Jesus? Here's just a few. They should see people of unconditional love. Jesus said that you will know my followers by their love for one another. Is that something that we want to be marked by? Absolutely. Wouldn't it be great when someone says, hey, what's First Baptist like? And the very first thing that someone says is, man, they're loving. They are a loving people. They just love people. Unconditional love. Secondly, the church, uh, the world should see people as the church of unbelievable joy. You do know as Christians, we should be the happiest people on earth, right? Man, you know, sometimes we walk into church and how are things? We're good. Hallelujah. Face longer than a mule eating hay through a picket fence. Like, Christians, we should not be the ones who are down all the time. We should be happier than anyone because we know what's waiting on the other side for us. And so they should see people of unbelievable joy. Doesn't mean that we don't have our times where we're down. But they should see people of unbelievable joy. Number three, they should see people of unexplainable peace. A peace that passes understanding. You know, one of the things that the financial collapse in 2008 uh, did that you may not realize, and if there's anybody in here from Lifeway, Landry Holmes may be able to tell you this. Um, You would think that in the financial collapse, sales for books and things like that would have gone down. But when the financial crisis happened, did you know that Christian books and Bibles were selling at a rate that they hadn't in 60 years? When the world goes to hell, the world turns to God. And when we see, excuse me, when the world sees that we're a people of peace, we're not driven to the gutter by the things around us. Instead, we have peace. Man, that's attractive. Jesus goes on to say, a city cannot, on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. It gives light for all who are in the house. If you know anything about ancient architecture in biblical times, you would know that oftentimes cities were built on hills. 
And the reason why is those traveling could see the city as they're traveling. Um, also, a lot of the buildings uh, in, in these cities were made of a white limestone. And the reason why they did this is so the sun would beam off of these buildings. And so people would be able to see what was going on in the cities. And at night, the people would light their lamps and the glow of all the lamps would be able to shine over on a hill where everybody who's looking could see. And so what's Jesus trying to say? Since Jesus has called his people to be the light of the world, what sense does it make for us not to shine our light for everyone to see? You know, I'm not a huge superhero guy, but if you had to ask me who my favorite two superheroes were, it would be these two. Anybody with me? Batman? Anybody like Batman? Iron Man? Anybody like Iron Man? Spider-Man? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Why do I like these two? I don't know. Uh... Maybe because they're the best movies that Marvel and DC has put out. Uh, Iron Man's and a lot of them. Batman, uh, there's some more that are being made right now. But the difference between Batman and Iron Man is, is really interesting. You see, I like superheroes who, <laughs> this is weird, you can make fun of me, but like technically could be possible. You know, like I understand that Superman, like that couldn't actually happen. No one can, you know, shoot webs out of their hands. Like that's not possible. But if you think about it, Tony Stark is Iron Man just because he has cool technology. And Batman is Batman just because he has cool technology. But here's the difference. Who is Batman in real life? Bruce Wayne. Now, does he tell people that he's Bruce Wayne? No, he puts on the mask. He doesn't want anyone to know. But Iron Man, who's Iron Man? Tony Stark. Does he hide his identity? And so the difference between Batman is Batman, he's a superhero, but he doesn't want anybody to know about it. Iron Man's like, hey, this is me. I'm letting everybody know that I'm Iron Man. And so the question that we must ask is, are we a Batman Christian or an Iron Man Christian? If you walk out into the world at your job, do people know that you're a Christian? Or is that something that you're keeping for yourself? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself from the world has ceased to follow him. If we're going to follow Jesus, every person we encounter should know that we're a Christian. Not only does God call us to be salt and light for the preservation of our land and the persuasion of the lost, but ultimately we're called to be salt and light for the praise of the Lord. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And that word good there is an interesting one. In the original language, it's a robust good. It's not just Billy is a good boy. It's like Chick-fil-A is so good. That movie is good. It's a good that carries an attractiveness to it. And so Jesus is saying that when people see our good works, they should be attracted to what it is that makes us able to do those good works. Not that they would give praise to us. No, no, no. But to the Lord. Yet... A lot of us, if we're honest, don't shine our light before others, not because we don't know that we need to. We've grown up in church. We know that we need to do that. But a lot of us would say it's because, man, Noah, who am I? I'm so insignificant. Like the things that I could do, the light that I can shine, it's just just really small compared to everybody else. I don't know if it matters that much. Can I tell you this morning, that is such a lie. No matter how small you may think your light is, you're forgetting how distinctive light actually is. Remember that old hymn we learned in Sunday school? 
about light. Remember it went, this large light of mine. Wait, no. This medium light of mine. No, no, no. What does it say? This. You can sing. And so here's the thing about light. Light contrasts the dark. It doesn't compare itself to it. You see, the thing that we learn about light is that no matter how small the light may be, it depends on what's around it. So right now you see the light. But media team, help me preach this a little bit this morning, would you? Check this out. How well do you see it now? And so you may say, Noah, I don't have much to shine. My light seems insignificant. My light seems like it's not going to make that much of a difference. Let me tell you something, friend. It's a dark world out there. If you let your light shine, you show Christ in you to the people around you. They'll notice the contrast between light and darkness. Some of the best conversations I've ever had sharing the gospel are with friends who made fun of me, who ridiculed me, who cursed me behind my back because I live for Jesus. And then when their life went to hell, they came to me. Why? Because I was the only light that they knew to go to. Friend, you shine your light because in the dark world around you and the people that God has specifically put in your place, you may be the only light they'll ever know. So my question is, will you be salt and light daily? This is not a Sunday sermon. This is a Monday, Tuesday sermon. Will you be salt and light where God has placed you and you specifically to preserve the land that God created and the society in it, to persuade those who don't have a relationship with him, to give their lives to him, ultimately for his glory and our good. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you. We do thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have called your people To be salt and light. And God, we know that where we're at in our lives are not mistakes. Rather, it is your sovereign hand and sovereign will that has made that come about. Father, I pray that as we step into a time of response and invitation, that you would have your way. As heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed, Maybe this hit home with you this morning. And you say, you know what? There's a coworker that I really, really need to share the gospel with. There's a friend that I need to be a light to. There's, there's something that God is trying to do through me that I want to step into. Hey, I want to ask you to do something really bold. I said a little earlier that without the Spirit's help, man, we don't stand a chance. And I'll tell you this, without the Spirit's help, we can never be all that God has called us to be. And so I want to ask you to do something really bold. If you're here this morning and say, you know what, I understand that I need to be salt and light. There's someone that God has put on my heart to share his love with. 
I'm going to pray in a second. I'm going to say, man, we're all going to stand. I want to ask you to come down front, kneel at these steps, and just lift that up to the Lord. Let's create a culture of where the altar isn't our foe, it's our friend. And for those of you in here this morning, you may say, I don't know if I can shine my light before others because I've never accepted the one true light of the world, which is Jesus Christ. I'll be standing down front. You can come see me. All you have to say is, Noah, I'm ready to make that decision today. Whatever it is, I pray that God is putting on your heart. I pray that you wouldn't walk out the doors without placing it before him. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done here this morning. God, continue to move. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.